Are you ready to begin your journey out of the realm of just theories and into a world of excitement and experience that only comes with braving the unknown? Join us as we speak to entrepreneurs who have faced the challenges of successfully creating businesses at home as well as abroad. Whether it's arts, services, or tech, from Shanghai to Tokyo, Bangkok to Mumbai, we'll help you find your inspiration and turn it into action. Get ready for Asia Biz Stories, Entrepreneurs in Action. Now welcome your host, Neville J. McKenzie. Today's conversation is with Craig DeLarge, a digital healthcare executive in the pharma industry. In a career that spans over 30 years, his focus has developed into challenging leadership roles that have advanced digital healthcare outcomes globally. From his base in the USA, specific projects included digital mental health, digital healthcare strategy development, education and advisory, and change leadership strategy consulting and coaching. He knows what it takes to make an organization change when it faces a crisis. It's just that in my experience, what I've found generally, people will agree with you about an opportunity, but they will act on a crisis. Three years ago, he moved to Singapore to support clients and stakeholders navigate the emerging digital healthcare ecosystem and develop the capacity to lead in ambiguous change scenarios. He describes himself as an entrepreneur. This is our first meeting. Our conversation takes place just a few days before his return to the USA. In his bare-bones apartment, a reflection of the move which is about to see him start a Master of Public Health in Global Mental Health, a family reunion and the next phase of Craig's passion project and the change from intrapreneur to entrepreneur, the Digital Mental Health Project. The point in life where you're most susceptible to becoming mentally unwell, between about 18 and 25. I hope that the university that he goes to has a whole suite of support systems, technologies, data algorithms, notifications to the family, and an absence of stigma. So now, without further delay, let's begin. Hi, I'm with Craig Delage. Mm -hmm. uh, Craig, can you just introduce yourself? Yes, thank you very much, Neville. So, my name is Craig Delarge. Um, I am a digital mental health researcher, uh, which looks at how digital technologies are being used in the mental and behavioral health areas. Um, throughout my career, I've worked for many years in the pharmaceutical industry. I'm a marketer by training. I have my MBA. I'm also a certified leadership coach. Um, I love to teach and I love innovation and change management and things like that. So it's good to be here talking to you today. Can you just tell me something about your past and your history? Sure. So I'm from the United States, um, and I'm what you might call a, uh, a regional hybrid. So I was born in the southern United States, which is what you might call the ancestral home of African Americans, um, but grew up up north, in the northeast in Philadelphia. Um, Let's see, what else can I tell you? Um, I've always been kind of prone to 
um, the design fields, again, innovation. And um, early in my life, I thought that I was actually going to be a fashion designer. I was a fashion designer, actually, in high school. Um, started doing that when I went into undergrad in college. But then when I met my wife, and I realized that I was going to have to make a real living, <laughs> I then switched to marketing. And because my father worked in the uh, healthcare pharma industry, Johnson & Johnson, that kind of ended me up in this track. But throughout that career, um, which has been um, three decades now, um, there was this thing that started happening in the mid-90s called the Internet. And I was a brand director at the time. And I remember going to my VP asking um, to be transferred to this new e-commerce group that was developing. He told me I was ruining my career because who knew what was going to happen with the Internet, right? It was a fad. Um, but I have to tell you that one of the most gratifying elements of my career is that I've been able over the long term to play um, a substantive role in helping the pharmaceutical industry come along in its use of digital technologies and have seen how that's benefited very, very many people. What was it about this new thing, the internet, that sort of triggered you to want to transfer? Because most people, like the rest of your company, were yeah. saying, you're going to ruin your career. Yeah, most you're going to ruin like your career. <laughs> your manager was saying you're going to ruin your career. Yeah. So why did you think it would be good for your career? Yeah, so it was about love and novelty. So at this time in my career, I was in my mid-30s, and I was burning out. I was. Um, and I recognized that, and not self-recognized, I recognized as a function of exposures that I was having in my life, that I needed to make a pivot in my career and that I needed to do things based on my love of them rather than my fear of deprivation or lost face or whatever. And so as I contemplated the idea of working in an area digital that really is transformative when it comes to communication um, as well as experience, uh, that was something that really attracted me. So, and I have to tell you, ever since I have been following a path of love and interest, um, it's, I've done well in my career. Some people would say that I could have done better <laughs> if I had stayed with kind of the, what you're supposed to do in a career. Uh, but I have to tell you, I'm much happier, healthier, and feel like I've made a much better contribution from staying with love. <laughs> yeah. You've moved into the digital area. What kind of changes and what kind of opportunities did it present to you? Yeah. So one um, opportunity that is presented is this ability or the privilege, I should say, of working for a lot of different companies. You know, the nature of digital uh, for the last 20 years and I think in most industries, certainly in the pharma industry, is that companies go through a cycle of adoption, uh, disillusionment, shutdown, and then re-engagement. And so what that's resulted in is that I've moved across about six pharma companies um, in that time frame, kind of timing it with, with periods of time when leadership have said, we want to re-engage, engage or re-engage digital. And it's been very gratifying to be able to go, to go into organizations and become what I call a serial intrapreneur, right? So repeatedly going into organizations and helping the leaderships figure out what is digital, how is it best applied to their strategy, 
and how to actually implement and execute. So that's resulted in me doing good work in the US. I've had lots of collaborations in Europe, being here in Singapore the last three years where I've been working for Takeda Pharmaceutical as the head of their digital accelerator uh, for the emerging markets, which is the whole world outside of Japan, North America, and Europe. Very, very gratifying. So you mentioned entrepreneur. I have to tell you, you're the first person that has described themselves as an entrepreneur that I've actually met. Yes. So tell me more about difference, that. Difference, yeah. So both, to use the classic definition, go about the activity of taking resources out of low return areas and shifting them into areas where there will be a higher return for the investment made. That's kind of the classic definition of an entrepreneur, uh, of an entrepreneur. However, intrapreneurs start new ventures and bring about innovation inside of large bureaucracies. And that's the key difference between an intrapreneur and an entrepreneur. Entrepreneurs tend to be outside of a bureaucracy, but working in an ecosystem and developing things that don't have a lot of legacy barriers that they can get to market. And we know the majority of the time they actually don't succeed, at least not on one shot, but they create a lot of new economic value all the time. Well, the fact is the same thing happens in large organizations um, where they are out to be sustainable. And even though it's a tough fight of a different type, the fact is, is that innovation is happening in large organizations also. is relatively more difficult to implement. You have many more forces fighting against you to get it done. Um, but you can certainly see the effect of it, many, many case studies and examples of it. So tell me about some of those forces that working against you. Yeah. So, and, and this is um, kind of the human element in these things. Um, so complacency is one. Um, I actually like to cite the, the, this model um, around change management that was developed by John Cotter. He's the father of change management, actually, at Harvard Business School. And so he talks about the idea that complacency. Any successful organization has gotten successful by learning how to do a set of activities in a highly excellent manner. And that's what makes it go. So whenever someone comes in and says, we need to innovate and do something differently, the whole system is built to actually resist being moved off of the path that has made it successful as it is. So this is a, a significant barrier, is the um, convincing the status quo to do something differently. And usually what that takes is um, highly credible leadership plus some significant crisis that is perceived as threatening the existence of the organization. And that coupled with significant incentives that encourage leadership, particularly middle management, to do something differently than what they've done in the past. Kodak? Yes. I think they developed the digital yes. photography. Well, you have, so Kodak, who developed digital but didn't yeah. capitalize on it. Xerox, who developed the PC and the mouse, yeah. <laughs> but didn't capitalize on it, right? And um, established organizations do this regularly. R&D is always churning out, right, and discovering and developing things. But the capacity to see 
how a given discovery is relevant to what we do today is often missed by those that are really good within the bots or the paradigm or the business model that they're in. Right? So how does a company see the crisis? People only look back and say, oh, at that point, you should have done this. So if you're a company like Kodak or Xerox, yeah. do you say we're going to have a problem in a year? Well, most of the time you actually, um, you either don't see it or you ignore it, right? So I, th- I, would, I would dare say that in most organizations, if you ask management, what is going to put you out of business tomorrow? What business out there could put you out of business within five years or, or disrupt you, as we like to say? They actually don't know the answer to it and are frankly so busy trying to figure out how to deliver the next quarter results that they don't have a lot of time to worry about it until it becomes really critical, until it absolutely positively can't be ignored. Once again, it's a good thing because that's the focus that makes any organization successful. But there is a point at which that focus goes from being an asset to being a detriment. And all of the the talk um, and effort that you see in industry these days around incubators, accelerators, innovation process, you name it, is really about organizations more and more realizing the, the need to better balance, focus on what we do well with an ability to detect where we need to do differently. Um, Managements are struggling with how to find that balance. And there are a lot of different models out there that you can see of how organizations are going after it. Yeah. So what model would you favor? Ah, so this is going to be an unsatisfactory answer, but I would favor the model that best fits the cultural um, mindset or style of the organization. So I should say, I don't really have a preference other than what the situation dictates. But I can tell you that situations tend to dictate um, creating what's called a skunk works. This is something that Peter Drucker came up with. And um, for, for people interested in this topic, I can't recommend enough Peter Drucker's seminal work, Innovation and Entrepreneurship. He actually wrote it back in the 60s, but if you read it today, it's just as relevant. It's a really good read. But anyway, creating a skunk works. You take a team of people whose job it is to work on finding the new business model that will represent our future revenues or to come up with a solution that fights off a threat. You put them in a garage, as we like to say, and let them do their thing. And they have a responsibility to report back to the internal management. The beauty of that is they don't get killed off by the antibodies, as it were, in the larger organization. Okay. Another model is you set up systems, processes, and incentives that doesn't really give the current management in the organization an option to do anything other than something differently with at least some small portion of their time and effort. You see this in Google and 3M, where they have the 20% rule, right? So that the scientists in R&D or the programmers in Google are given what really is one day a week to just work on their own projects. And when we look at the case studies around 3M, um, Minnesota um, Mining and Manufacturing, yeah. I think it is, right? They, they, for many years now, have had this benchmark of 
X percentage of revenue needs to come from products that have been developed within the last five years, I think it is, right? And that is, now they didn't develop something outside the company. They brought the a right set of accountabilities and practices inside of the organization that holds the entire organization accountable for a degree of innovation. And when people don't do it, bonuses get lost. So those are kind of two approaches. Both work well when management is willing to get behind it, enforce it, and drive it. So why don't most companies do that? The 3M model is well known. I know about it. Yes. <laughs> so if it's so successful, why isn't there more copying? Because complacency is easier. It really, yeah. really. So there's a, a, a evolutionary biologist, not biologist, um, anthropologist. Uh, I just discovered this recently. Talked about the idea that in all of the cosmos, there is no such thing as laziness. There's only conservation of energy. <laughs> Right. So my grandmother used to say, you know, get up, boy, and do something with yourself. You stop being lazy. I realized now I wasn't being lazy. I was conserving energy. The point being that um, no organization or organism, it spends more energy than it believes it needs to in order to survive, which is one of the reasons why crisis or a threat to survival is one of the key elements that you need in order to get people or organizations working on doing something differently. So you could say in complacency, organizations are conserving their energy. Unless they have a leader, a crisis, and a set of incentives that make them do otherwise. So if you're an employee working for such an organization and you see the crisis coming, yeah. what should you do? How do you make those changes? Mm. I mean, in many cases, people, are, you know, an entrepreneur says the reason I started this business was because I couldn't get it I going. Couldn't, exactly. I couldn't get it going I, in the organization. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, let, let me stay with the three, the, these three points I've been making. You have to find a leader that's willing to champion and sponsor because it's of advantage to them and they too can see the crisis coming. You have to find a crisis that is a hot button for the organization such that people are at least willing to investigate if there's really something there and what is it going to mean for our business. And then you've got to develop um, a level of, uh, I'll call it champion and sponsorship, that management is willing to actually alter incentives in the organization to reward or penalize people for not attending to the crisis or opportunity. It's just that in my experience, what I've found generally, people will agree with you about an opportunity, but they will act on a crisis. <laughs> so you get a lot of, yeah, 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 that's a wonderful opportunity. I'll come back to us with that next year because we've got to invest in this this year. But when it's a crisis, people go, ooh, yeah, we really can't wait a year to do something about that, can we? Yeah, yeah I had a conversation with a friend actually a couple of nights ago. Uh-huh. He works for a, a large company mm-hmm. in the UK, and he was saying something very similar, that he can see things happening. Yeah. The changes that he feels should be done, he can't find anyone within his organization that can implement those changes. 
So you would advise him to do what you just suggested with those three points you yeah, just made? Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, part of the art of entrepreneurship is having um, a broad set of contacts and network in an organization that gives you an easier ability to find the executives that would care. And it's usually not that you know the executive, but you know someone who knows. This is what we call the strength of weak ties. <laughs> it's a social networking uh, concept where there's more value in the second order connection than there is in the people that I immediately know. Now, you know, when you go to many industry conferences these days, there's a statistic that's become quite common. And I'm going to paraphrase here um, that the Fortune uh, 500, Something like somewhere between 20 and 50% of the Fortune 500 that existed a decade ago no longer exists. And they show this statistic to kind of shock people into the idea that if you're not on your game, being innovative, you know, figuring out what the threats are and the disruptions are in your industry or business, you won't exist. But I think that uh, the same way that human beings we know that one day we're going to die, but the typical human being cannot actually take in or conceive or digest the idea that I'm really going to die. I think organizations are the same way because organizations are just groups of people. So you can say all day to an organization, there's a disruptor over here. They can kill you tomorrow. But until you actually directly experience that, you think that's the other 50%. Like that 50% that no longer exists, they're not us. Yeah. <laughs> right. At some point in my career, I talked earlier about how in my mid-30s I'd started to burn out. Um, and, I, and I started getting more focused on this idea of having a career based on what I love to do versus what I have to do. I began reflecting on my original career aspiration of being a designer. It was right about this time that I found out that the University of Westminster in uh, the UK was the only MBA program in the world with an emphasis in design management. So I actually enrolled in that program. It was a nice two-year program. Um, it really helped me, I'm very gratified to say, to recapture uh, a bit of the role of being a designer that I have been able to uniquely bring to my work as an entrepreneur and innovator. What is design management? Design management, yes. Yeah. So when you look at the disciplines of management, right? You know, we, we manage um, financial management, uh, money, operations management, um, processes, um, supply chain, marketing management, right? Um, the marketing mix, communications, this sort of stuff. Design management. Design management and people debate this, is about experience. So every one of those disciplines of management are about how do I leverage this resource to create competitive advantage that differentiates me from my competitors and allows me to thrive in an environment, right? So as we've moved more and more into being a service information knowledge economy based on a consumerist ethic, more and more of what we spend for a product is not the actual physical fixed thing, but it's the branding, it's reputation, it's celebrity. Case in point, uh, you take two cars, 
take a Toyota Corolla and take a Lexus. I think Lexus is also Toyota, right? Why does one cost three to four times more in price? It's all design, right? It's the service you get in the dealer. It's the comfort of the seats. It's the hum of the engine. It's how the doors sound when you close them. It's the celebrities you see on the commercial, right? Well, that's all design. Yeah. 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 It's design. Yeah. So design management is where um, organizations have really begun to pay much more attention to these elements of perception and experience that make an emotional and heartfelt tie to people and thus encourage them to happily fork over more money. Now, that's kind of a commercial take on it. But the fact is, when you look at nonprofit um, and government, you also see that using design to improve service delivery processes, um, the experience that allows people to be more sticky in their use of social services and this sort of thing. You see that there's a beneficial application, not just in getting more money out of people, but in also helping people to do a better job of taking advantage of the services that um, governments and nonprofits would want to offer them. Does that sort of touch on this idea I've heard about called nudge, where you're nudging? Yeah, yeah. so nudging is a behavioral, uh, a behavioral management uh, approach it can, like, like any of these approaches, it's a hammer, right? You can build a house with it or you can kill someone with it. It's the skill of the craftsperson yeah. that makes it beneficial or, or harmful, right? But yeah, this nudging is, um, and I work in healthcare, so we're seeing a lot of, of excellent applications of nudging because one of the most difficult things it is to, that, um, the most difficult things for us to pull off in healthcare is getting human beings to take care of their health when they are not in pain. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and so the nudging has been a very interesting way of getting at that. But yeah, this is an element of, of design and experiential design in particular. Tell me about this digital mental health project that you mentioned at the beginning. Yeah. yeah. So back in mid-2014, when I had left uh, my last company, I decided to take a sabbatical. Um, just to do some thinking about what I wanted to do next in terms of my career. Um, one of the things that I didn't mention earlier is that in, in addition to being um, an, an entrepreneur in the pharma industry and all this, I'm also a mental health advocate. So I've had uh, the unfortunate circumstances of mental health crises in my family. And those circumstances and our families. Um, process of facing that have pulled me and my wife both actually into mental health advocacy. So what I decided to do was to develop a project that would bring together my digital health strategy work occupationally and my mental health advocacy work vocationally. And so that resulted in a strategy exercise where I started looking at and mapping all of the companies and all of the applications of digital technology that we see in mental and behavioral health, which kind of runs, you know, the, the most popular applications that we see right now are um, telepsychiatry, 
which gives us the ability to um, get in touch with a therapist, psychologist, or psychiatrist through our video conferencing on desktop or chat on our smartphone. There are even artificial intelligence robots that have been programmed that can effectively deliver various types of cognitive behavioral therapy, telepsychiatry. Then there is eCBT. Um, cognitive behavioral therapy is one of the best um, positively evidenced therapeutic approaches that we see in this space. And for very many years, you could do it one-on-one -on -one with a therapist or their books you could read and this sort of thing. But now there's a whole industry of companies that will give you the ability to engage in various degrees of CBT across great distances, asynchronously in different times of the day, with a range from human being to um, telephone, to chat, to artificial intelligence robot. And then you're also seeing a lot of application of virtual reality. So virtual reality is actually proven to be very effective in helping people with post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety, and even schizophrenia. And then because we know that our healthcare systems are very fragmented and disjointed with a lot of um, inefficiencies and ineffectiveness, um, technologies are being used to develop what we call care delivery platforms that allow different doctors, therapists, even social workers and law enforcement to have a singular view of the same person so that they can coordinate their efforts around talk therapy, social services, pharmacotherapy, in order to get better outcomes in terms of how people who struggle with mental unwellness um, are treated. So you can have specialists in, for example, different countries yes. that can come together across the internet. Indeed, indeed. And um, be able to give their advice, give suggestions as to how this patient can move forward. Yes. That so that's doctors consulting with one another. Mm -hmm. But right now, one of the most vexing issues in the mental health area is long waiting times to see a therapist. But there are services out there now where you can pick up your cell phone and get on a chat messenger and get a therapist right away without needing to wait a long time to get to the office. You've also got a lot of people who are too anxious to even leave where they live who will never go to a doctor's office. Um, they can use chat in their telephone, right? Um, and then I, I say, because we still have so much stigma in our societies around the world when it comes to mental unwellness. Yeah, this is one of the things I, I was, yeah. I've been thinking about recently. Um, it's like you, I've, you know, I've got, I've had people, friends, um, that have had mentally, Yes. health issues yes um as a bystander effectively what would i do um in this situation with these tools that you're is there something i can use with these tools or can i do with these yeah tools? so i would say i think that as as a global society generally one of the biggest gaps we have right now is a lack of awareness that the tools even exist yeah right and we hear a lot about how digital technology, social media, you name it, are damaging our health, right? The, I think the WHO just declared a video game addiction yeah, as a mental yeah. disorder, right? But here's the thing. 
It's just a tool, yeah. right? It's the skill of the user that makes it positive or detrimental. I think that, and we see this whenever there is a significant new technology that crops up in human society, we go through a period of time where we're enamored with it, then we misuse it and it damages us, then we develop a degree of skill that allows us to moderate the damage or even benefit from it. And I think that this area of digital mental health is a real opportunity for how we can actually use our devices and our wearables and sensors and virtual reality lenses to actually figure out how to improve human health, where right now most of our use of it is unfortunately too often damaging human health. So that's why I'm really motivated and excited about the research um, that we're doing with this project and then the follow-on educational programs that we're going to be developing. Are you doing this with a company or are you doing this on your own? It's solo. And what I'm working on doing right now is developing a community of people who are like interested. Um, I'm discovering that there are a lot of people around the world that are working on this also. Um, so it takes a village, as they say. And um, I'm working on developing some products right now that will be helpful with um, validating the effectiveness, getting more people aware of that and then helping people and organizations to figure out their own personal and organizational digital mental health strategies. So you're moving from entrepreneur to entrepreneur? Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> How are you finding that? Unnerving to say the least, yes. And largely because it's a different comfort zone, right? But again, following that path of love. What would the differences between being an entrepreneur and an entrepreneur? Well, in, as an intrapreneur, though they may not be happy about what you're saying, the fact is you're in a comfortable cocoon with a lot of administrative support, a regular paycheck, good healthcare benefits, right? <laughs> um, whereas as an entrepreneur, you're outside of that. So you're more nimble, you can move more quickly, but the amount of resources are not necessarily as easy to get. And you've got to figure out how to nurture your own cash flow in the meantime. There's also, um, unless you really work hard to construct it on the entrepreneurial side, less immediate social support. On the entrepreneur, you're embedded inside of a bureaucracy. There's a lot of social support that you have there. Yeah. One of the things that's mentioned about being an entrepreneur is it's very lonely. Yes. and in your position as a mental health expert, yes, how does an entrepreneur deal with that? Yeah, so I think that you have to be very deliberate about it. As a matter of fact, uh, there's this, this new organization that just cropped up in Silicon Valley called um, Hacking Mental Health. It's founded by Stephen Cognetta. And the reason is because they're recognizing the negative mental toll that the pressure and the loneliness and the drivenness of tech entrepreneurship is having on too many of the workers, um, you know, in that field. How is it expressing itself? Increased levels of depression, uh, performance anxiety. Um, there's this interesting correlation between bipolar schizophrenia and genius. So, you know, there's kind of a genius cluster that you have, right, in the tech industry. And so... The fact is that any of us under enough stress 
will tend to gravitate towards our most likely mental illness, right? The same way you put too much pressure on a bone, it break. You put too much pressure on the psyche, it breaks. It can heal, and this is what we need to understand. We understand that if you break a bone, mend it and it'll heal. We don't believe that if a psyche breaks, it too can heal under the right conditions. This is where we have to deal with stigma. But you're seeing more and more of depression, bipolar, suicide, because we as societies have not done a good enough job of equipping ourselves with the skill sets that allow us to be resilient under extreme pressure. Most entrepreneurs, like you mentioned, they're, they're on their own, or yeah. maybe two. Yeah. So if I am overweight, or I feel I'm overweight, yeah. I look in the mirror and I think, oh, I need to do something, I need to go to the gym. Yeah. If I'm putting myself under too much stress, what do I, what can I look for to be able to say, oh, I need to do something about this? Ah. And what can I do? Because most people are not in the, in the position, say Silicon Valley, being in Silicon Valley, you know, they're in Asia, they're in Europe, yeah. Yeah. Um, they're, they may be miles away. Yeah, so, and, yeah, and very often when we, when we, if we become mentally unwell, it kind of sneaks up on us. Yeah. Right? Because the mind, it's like the eye can't see itself, the mind can't see itself. Mm -hmm. So I would say that for one thing for sure, we as leaders in high pressure industries need to not delude ourselves about the fact that as human beings, we are all susceptible to becoming mentally unwell. And we need to have a strategy of prevention. So this means, uh, good social relationships, giving ourselves appropriate breaks, like understanding our limits around stress. Um, you know, meditation and relaxation has proven clinically to be very effective at staving off the, the effects of too much stress. Um, diet, there's a whole new field of psychonutrition. We're starting to understand that the food we eat can actually have a great deal of impact on, right? Um, biometrics. So everyone's walking around with an Apple Watch. There are very many things or and apps now that you can um, put on your devices that will help you to have track and have an understanding of the degrees to which you might be depressed or whatever, right? And then I think the other thing is listening to people around us. So usually I think someone's going to tell you that you're out of sorts before you realize it. Very often, particularly if we are very competent and capable people, we don't listen. We don't listen until we have a crisis. And then, as we said earlier, a crisis shocks us into what we need to do. Mm -hmm. But again, as societies, we have a real opportunity to do a better job of taking away stigma so that the same way that if I broke a bone in my arm, I wouldn't out of a do out of an um element of shame, walk around with a broken arm, I would come and say, my arm is broken. Can you bind it? We need to get to the same place where we think about our emotions, our mind and our psyche that we are when we think about our bones. But some people would walk around with a broken arm because they're thinking, I'll do it tomorrow. You know, I just need to get through this stage. Yes. And once I've got through, then I'll sort it out. And then the next day they say, mm, yeah, I can get through another day, get through another day. And before, yes. before long, it's... There it's arms, infected. Yeah, it's right, infected. Right. So 
is it is that a process of education? Think about in history. We've had diseases where there is a high degree of stigma. The two that come most readily to my mind are infections and cancer, right? There used to be a time where before we understood the biological basis of these and had gone through generational resocialization, I'll call it, that people wouldn't go to the doctor if they had a cancer because of the superstition around it. Or when a person got an infection, we didn't realize that you just need to wash your hands and take antibiotics. We would stay away from them and think that, you know, they're contagious, right? They're going to hurt us. But we see today, though not uniformly around the world, I'm afraid to say, right, that we don't feel that way anymore. It didn't happen overnight. Most of us don't remember when it wasn't that way. None of us can recall when it was a stigma to have cancer. We need to be working today to create a future. Right? So I'm very much, I have a three-year-old grandson, right? I'm very motivated in this work by creating a future in a society where when he goes to university, the point in life where you're most susceptible to becoming mentally unwell, between about 18 and 25, I hope that the university that he goes to has a whole suite of support systems, technologies, data algorithms, notifications to the family, and an absence of stigma that he would be able to avoid suicide, depression. Not that it wouldn't come upon him. These are all temptations of the human condition, but so is infections. But we have antibiotics, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so we, we need to develop a future and a system that is just as capable of helping people to avoid or recover from mental unwellness as we've gotten good at helping people to uncover from physical unwellness. So that's what we're working on. That's yeah. the future we're working on. Anyone listening to this, from what you're saying, I would, I would say you start working on yourself. Yes. And you start to look at what you're doing and your attitude towards mental health. Yes. And then that can be reflected in the, into the people that you know, That's your family, your friends. Yes. Right. Um, which... And then which, your children, I would say. Yeah. And that will present challenges. Would I be right in saying that? All change does. Yeah. All change does. Yeah. But this is where it's important for us to remember the advantages we have today in society are because somebody in the past stepped out of line and began to challenge the status quo, right? In various ways, sometimes within the system, sometimes outside the system. But we enjoy what we enjoy today because someone had a vision and decided to sacrifice something. We need to be thinking about what our appropriate places in our life to create the same for someone in the future. Okay, so is there anything else you'd like to add to that? Uh, no, not really. Thank you for the opportunity. And this yeah. has been a, a great discussion. And I hope that people who listen to it find it helpful. Oh, didn't ask about your family. Oh, can you just tell okay, me? Okay, yeah. yeah. So, so I am um, the husband of uh, one wife for 30 years. We're actually going to be married 30 years uh, August of this year. We're very happy and gratified about that, yeah. indeed. And I have two children. So I have a son who's 35, a daughter who's 29. Uh, they live in the United States in Philadelphia. And I have a grandson who's three years old, who I'm really looking forward to as we head back to the United States in the next few weeks. So have you, 
son and daughter visited here in Singapore? So my daughter's been here twice yeah. and my grandson once. My son is not there. Oh. Is not, yeah. So you mentioned that you're going back to the States. Yes, yeah. And what's motivating you to return to the Grandson. States? Your grandson. <laughs> That's it, yeah. So I've, so I've been here in Singapore for three years now and I've missed... Uh, for the most part, the first three years of his life. Um, I tend to think that those first three years is not so important for a man's presence, right? But he's he's about to turn three. And so this next couple of years from three to five, I really want to be there to be present with him. Um, and then beyond that, we'll kind of see what we do, you know. Uh, the, the fact is these days, people are so mobile, you know, he he and his parents might move away to some other part of the country. And my wife and I certainly... I have enjoyed this expat experience of living outside the United States and have cultivated a bit of glow of a global view in terms of how we can use our talents to contribute, particularly in the health and mental health area. And so uh, we think we'll be moving back out of the U.S. at some point again. And if anyone wants to get in touch with you, ah, how can they do so? So you can Google me, Craig A. DeLarge. I'm very Google Googleable, yeah. right? But I would encourage people to read um, the blog that I have for the Digital Mental Health Project, which is at medium.com forward slash at sign DMHP. And we'll be putting a link to that in our On the show notes. notes. Okay, yeah. very nice. Yeah. Okay, Craig, thank you very much. Yes, thank you. And uh, we'll keep in touch. A pleasure indeed. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Craig, for sharing your in-depth knowledge on the factors that determine how we handle crisis and opportunity and the importance to us all to be aware to take care of our mental health. We wish you all the best with your efforts to improve the tools and reduce the stigma as an entrepreneur with the Digital Mental Health Project. This brings us to the end of this episode of Asia Biz Stories, Entrepreneurs in Action. Now we need you to hit the subscribe button and head over to asiabizstories.com for more great information on how to take your inspiration and turn it into action. Thanks again, and we look forward to having you join us next time on Asia Biz Stories, Entrepreneurs in Action.